Welcome to the Kindness Podcast. I'm Nicole Phillips. Brad Aronson knows the transformative power of kindness. When his wife Mia was diagnosed with leukemia, Brad began caring for his wife and walking their young son through the journey. But they didn't walk alone. Brad was so overwhelmed by the abundance of kindness that he began taking note and notes, literally. His best-selling book is called Humankind, Changing the World One Small Act at a Time. Brad, most people these days have bios that really sing their praises. They kind of go on for a long time. And yours cracked me up, to be honest, because it basically said, you know, I'm a fun dad. I love to write. Oh, yeah, I started a a tech company. Eventually, it was bought by Microsoft. Now I invest in kids and other people. And, you know, like, okay, that's just kind of me. And you take everything that you've done, all of these huge things, and, and you you just kind of say, yeah, it's all part of me without making a really big deal out of it. But can we break down some of these things? Because I think that it really, um, it just really paints a really clear picture of, of how kindness is you. Uh, so would you start with the, with the before, life before the traumatic event that inspired this book? So life before the traumatic event was probably like most people's lives. We're planning for our future. We we're thinking about all the good things we're going to do, not ever thinking for a second that all of a sudden my wife would be diagnosed with leukemia. And, and what I was doing right before then was I was teaching entrepreneurship to, to youth uh, who had been in the foster care program as a way to teach them resiliency, teach them to hustle and, and self-confidence. These kids are amazing entrepreneurs and it was super fun and also investing in some startups and spending most of my time working with youth nonprofits because I love working with young people. Uh, So many kids have tons of potential, but often just the circumstances they're born into or the zip code they're born into limits that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How do you, how, how did you get a heart that even started to, to be interested in people outside your own family. I mean, I, I think that a lot of times we, we're just, we are just, you know, clocking, we're, we're punching the time clock, right? We're saying, okay, I'm here I am, I'm clocking in for the day, you know, but I got to take care of my people. So where did that heart for you ever even begin back, way back whenever it began? It began with my mom. So when mm. I was in junior high, my mom told my brother and I, you guys are so lucky and you don't even know it. You need to choose a place and start volunteering. And yeah, so that did it. And I started volunteering with a group that was for kids, elementary school kids whose families had been through significant trauma. And I would go and play kickball with them or tag or some sort of sports. And it was my first kind of eye opening. Holy cow, life is so unfair. Mm -hmm. And I just got lucky. And then ever since then, I've been passionate about trying to give back some of my luck and good fortune to other people. Okay, I think we need to stop there because I think you just hit something on the head that is so important to everyone who is trying to raise good humans. And that is this idea that how do we get them to reach that aha moment where, oh, yeah, it's not all about me. You say your mom just said, go do it, but 
were was it begrudgingly at first or or what helped you along the way? Was it the right volunteer experience? Can you kind of dive into that a little bit more? Because I think it's really important. So I've always been an extremely compassionate person. So I remember myself in elementary school seeking out the kids who got made fun of and, and wanting to befriend them because I just felt bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when my mom said this, it was natural and I kind of just lifted. Uh, and I don't know what's best for everyone. I know what's worked for us in our house is I could talk as much as I want about doing kind deeds, Mm -hmm. but it's when our son participates in it and lives it that he sees it. So for example, we've done food deliveries and I just say, Hey, we're going to go deliver some food. Okay, let's go do it. And then he'll say, I noticed that, you know, those people really needed the food and it leads to a conversation. And then he has more compassion. So I think as parents, you know, similar to my mom, we can encourage our kids to volunteer and get involved, but also just kind of reaching out there and saying, hey, here's what we're going to do and jumping in with them and letting them kind of experience it and see it for themselves is the best way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I do appreciate the opportunities that I have when one of my children will say something about something we have or something we don't have, you know, and, and something other people have or they don't have and how we can turn all of those little comments into a conversation. And um, my kids, two of them are now teenagers. So, you know, <laughs> they don't always want to lecture about it, but they definitely have opinions about things. And I get the chance now to listen and, and hear what their experience is with it. And it's it's pretty neat. So let's, um, let's move on in the timeline, because I'm interested in what happened around you when your wife got sick. So when my wife was diagnosed with leukemia, it was an immediate, you have to go to the hospital. And Mia wound up uh, living in the hospital for a month on inpatient chemo. And then after that, she had two and a half months of outpatient chemotherapy. So this is a really, really long time uh, to be in therapy. We have a, we had a, our son was five years old at the time. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to balance how do we keep his life normal and keep his anxiety level down. And at the same time, I'm trying to care for my wife who, you know, chemotherapy, as you know, it's, it's draining, it's difficult, you feel awful. And people just came out of the woodwork and saved us. Mm-hmm. And I had always been someone who volunteered and I hadn't needed help before. I had no idea how to ask for it. And you could see that it's what I saw was just the people who did things changed our lives. So it was when it was little league sign up time and my wife's friend Dawn called and said, I know that Jack loves little league and probably Mia used to do the signups. I'm going to sign Jack up and get him on a team with a friend that someone could drive him to practice because I know you spend a lot of time at the hospital. Mm. And this is Philadelphia's Little League. We're a humongous city. It's a Little <laughs> League run by volunteers. Yeah. Like somehow she got through to the right person, got him on a team with someone who could drive. Yep. And it was th- things like that that power you through. It's like that gives you the energy. That, that kindness gives you the energy for at least a week or two weeks to keep going. And then, you know, the next person who would reach out and say, hey, we, we made chicken soup for dinner and have a ton of extra. Can we bring some over? Mm-hmm. Like, man, they were thinking of us. And heck, that's way better than what I'm trying to microwave for Jack. Right. Uh, and all those little acts made a huge difference. 
And people didn't have to know us. There were strangers who, for example, parents from Jack's school who I didn't know, who reached out and said, here's what I'm going to do, or here's what I want to do. And it all made a difference. And it all helped us get through that really difficult time. There were two things that you mentioned in the book that were especially profound to me. And one was that your your hospital advocate said, Jack's young enough that he will be he will be fine. This will not be a massive traumatic experience in his life as long as you keep everything normal for him. Right. Like, oh, my gosh. Like, how does that happen? You know, and and then the other thing that you mentioned in the book that was really profound to me was that uh, people didn't say, if you need some help, let me know. You know, because sometimes we say that, but you said, I was so turned upside down, I would not have known how to ask for help. So can you kind of, um, <laughs> can you kind of walk us through that and, and this idea that, that when we're trying to be kind to someone else and when we're looking at someone else's situation, um, it's better, there's a better way of, than saying, you know, let me know if you ever need anything. Yes. And that's something I didn't know until I was in the situation. When people told us, and there were some people who said, hey, let us know what we could do. And they were genuine and they wanted to do something. I had no idea what to tell them. And I realized, and now I actually go, and when someone's in a difficult time, I just do stuff for them. It's the people who, when, our, when it snowed outside, I woke up in the morning. I was like, oh, they shoveled our sidewalk. Mm. Thank heavens. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't think I would get to that. Uh, our neighbor would call and she'd say, I'm going to the store to pick up groceries. What can I get for you? Mm. And she made it so easy. It wasn't, do you need anything at the store? It was, I'm already going. What can I get for you? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so people reaching out and doing things. And we all know someone who's going through a really difficult time. And we might hesitate to reach out because we think it's awkward. We don't know what to say. Uh, we might not know them that well. What I learned is that even a note makes a huge difference. We got a note from a parent in Jack's class who said, you know, we've never met, but I'm so-and-so's mom in Jack's class. I want to let you know that we're in your corner and we're thinking of you. Mm-hmm. That brought us to tears because when you're at this point in your lives, the littlest things make a huge difference. So all of us have the power to say, who do we know who's going through a rough time? And let's reach out to them and at least send them a note. And and through the book, I interviewed hundreds of people Mm -hmm. who had been through difficult times. And that's the one thing I heard consistently was what made the biggest difference is when I knew that someone saw me and someone cared about me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you you saw all of these acts of kindness happen in your own life and you took note of them quite literally because you ended up writing about it in the book. But then was it just a matter of of enjoying these stories so much? Did they do something for you uh, internally? And that's why you decided to, to, to expand beyond your own family because you could have written a beautiful book just about your story. So it's, it's, it's interesting. When I was reading your book, something you said resonated about what made this project so joyful for me. Uh, you know, you mentioned that what's nice about writing a gratitude journal is you're reliving those good experiences. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So for me, writing about the people who helped our family, I got to relive that joy and that feeling of love. And that helped us through that challenging time. Mm -hmm. And then I started seeing all these other stories I wanted to include where 
a seemingly trivial action completely transformed someone's life or had a ripple effect changing thousands of lives. And I just loved all those stories. So I incorporated them as well. And when I brought the book to the publisher, I actually took our story out because I thought, you know, these other people's stories were, were more interesting because they weren't mine. And the publisher said, we can't publish this without your story. That's got to be kind of the center of the book. Brad, that and, does and not surprise it me. It does not surprise me at all about you that you would say like, oh, just take my stuff out. Oh my gosh. I don't know if there's a more humble person on the face of the planet. I really don't. And everything that you get from this book is you're donating back to charity, all those royalties. Uh, there is in the intro, uh, I think it's in the intro. Uh, yep. You, you kind of talk, I mean, you spend like a paragraph, it seems like talking about your wife initially and that, and then you say, you know, you wanted to, to find other people's stories. So I, if you don't mind, I'm, can I read a few paragraphs of this? Cause I think it really is interesting how you see the world. Absolutely. We'll get back to our conversation with Brad Aronson in just a moment, but first our kindness call. My name is Linnell. L-Y-N-N-A-L. I have been coming to the fair for 46 years. I've missed one year in all of that time. I, the last many years, I have been going through every booth and picking up as much free stuff as they'll let me have. And I bring it home and I give it to like a first year teacher to use all year long for prizes or encouragement for their kids, somebody that's struggling maybe. You know, if you get this right, I'll give, let you dig in my prize bag and see what you come up with. They never know if they're going to get a pencil or a pen or a pencil sharpener or a koozie or whatever. But I just absolutely love it. I've given to the same teacher for many years, but she moved away. So then I had to find a new teacher, and I asked my sister, and she said, well... I know someone in Brookings that's just started teaching, and she would so appreciate it. So the last couple years, she's been getting all my prizes from me. I just, you know, I, I don't feel guilty taking so much free stuff then when I know I'm giving it away for a prize for some teacher that has to buy stuff out of her own money, and this way it saves her a lot, and it's an extra incentive. Did you know you can be on the Kindness Podcast? Call the Kindness Hotline with your story. You can leave us a voicemail at the number in the description of this podcast. Now, back to the show. So you say, I found the story of a third grade teacher who changed a boy's life with a simple lesson in shoe tying. The story about the band of seamstress grandmothers who descended on Philadelphia every week to patch clothes and in the process mend hearts for homeless people. The story of the woman whose decision to make an extra meal to feed someone in need led to a movement that's provided more than 16 million meals and so many more about people whose love for others has made a difference in the world. And then you say the heroes in humankind don't command an army of helpers or have an abundance of free time. They're everyday people who focus on what they can do to make a difference. Their acts of kindness change lives and even save them. These everyday heroes don't just hope the world will get better. They make it better. And then you have a whole back section of the book. Well, after every chapter, you say, okay, there's a it, at each chapter's conclusion and the, at the hall of at, and the hall of fame at the end of the book. That's what I'm talking about. Highlight easy ways you can have a meaningful impact. So you have this whole back section of the book, and you show people like 
where you can make a $195 donation to cure someone's blindness, how $500 can pay for a treatment that enables a disabled child to walk, and all of these other nonprofits and and ways for people to help and give encouragement. And I just think that's, you know, like I said, your story is so special, and yet you just want to continue to to make kindness contagious. Is that, what is your end goal for this? I mean, I I would love it if everyone who reads the book comes away saying, holy cow, I could change the world. Because we're at a time right now where there's a lot of stress, a lot of divisiveness. And I hear folks saying, there's so many problems, I can't make a difference. Mm-hmm. But every one of us can. And my goal is to show everyone how we have the power every day to do something small that can be life-changing for someone else. That, that's the goal. Were you surprised then that this book turned into a, a bestseller and, and that people just, you know, some, some of your reviews say, this is the best book I have ever read. And I mean, you know, these are adults. They've read a few books in their lives, right? Were you surprised by that? I, I was shocked. Uh, you know, I had a really hard time finding a publisher because I'm not active on social media and I don't have a huge platform. And people were concerned, like, how's the book going to get out there? So I was thinking, oh, my, I hope that I can get people to read it. I've been really just ecstatic with the responses I've gotten. And the the nicest things have been I get a lot of emails from strangers Mm -hmm. telling me that the book made them feel so great. And now here's what I'm doing in my own community and seeing all these service projects that people are starting after reading the book and hearing about how people may have felt really bad and now they feel great. That, that was the purpose. So it makes me feel great. It just like, it, it just kind of brings me to tears to think about it. Like that, that ripple effect, like having people just, you know, you know, you don't need a superhero cape, just do something, just do something, love on someone. And, and you just encourage people to do that and, and make them feel like, okay, this isn't all that terribly difficult. And I think it's going to feel really great. So I think I'm going to try it, right? It's just, ah, it's really special. I appreciate that. Thank you. So uh, I would like to, to, to take one little step back and, um, and give people another really helpful um, tool from you. Because when I talk to people, I, I, I get a couple of, of questions about, you know, specifically when when going through a trauma. I had breast cancer. So so people say when you walked through that, you know, w- in what ways could did people help you that were most helpful and effective? And you addressed one of those and saying, you know, somebody sent a note or or they called and said, I'm going to the store. What can I get you? And and so the flip side of that that people ask me about a lot is that you had to learn to accept that kindness of others. How did you get past the point where, you know, some people are just like, I, I can never pay this back. I can never in a million years write this many thank you notes or, you know, like it's got to stop. I'm, I'm too indebted to society right now. How did you get past that? Oh, my goodness. You know, this question is making me tear up because I'm thinking about how indebted I am to all those amazing people. And what I just try to do is pay it back to others. And I think twofold, you know, having done good deeds for other people and, and basically seeing what people did for my wife and I and our family and, and seeing how beautiful it was for us. 
I've done that for other people and it makes me feel amazing. And I feel so good doing that, that I think first by letting people help us, we're giving them a gift. If someone lets me help them, I feel great. I feel like I'm making a difference. That's a gift. And secondly, I try to pay that back by doing it for others uh, because I want to make the world a better place. I want to share the love that I got with other people but it's hard. It's so hard. And at first, you know, I was just, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Until I finally got to the point where just everything was falling apart around me uh, and I needed some help. So it's not easy to accept help, but I would think of it as we're giving someone a gift in that letting them help us. And then we're going to pay it back with everyone we help going forward. Mm-hmm. What great advice. Before I let you go, will you share uh one or some, as many as you want, <laughs> favorite kindness stories with our listeners? I would love to. And I'll share like a couple anecdotes mm-hmm. and then a story. And the, the anecdotes are from Ronald McDonald camp. It's a camp for kids with cancer and their siblings. And uh, the, the kids who have cancer when they take their medicine, it often makes them feel pretty bad. So you feel nauseous, you feel fatigued, you might feel dizzy. So since you're a kid, even though you know that this medicine is going to make you feel better, like taking medicine is not something you look forward to. Mm-hmm. And at this overnight camp, the kids would go every night uh, who got night medicine to the, the wellness center. And when you went to the wellness center, there was this disco ball that was spinning around and flashing and the lights were out and the music was blasting. Uh, it <laughs> I'm was sick thinking about atmosphere. it. Oh. <laughs> Kids love that, huh? Cause I'm an old lady and I'm like, Oh dear goodness. Somebody turned on the lights. <laughs> exactly. That's how I was. And, and, and they, they'd say, if you want to get your medicine, you got to dance for your meds and the kids would dance and this became <sighs> fun. And the kids looked forward to it. And, and someone said like, how could it be fun for kids to get medicine that's going to make them feel bad. And it's because the health and wellness staff said, why not? Why shouldn't it be fun? Mm-hmm. And there's such an important lesson for us there about making fun and creating our own fun, even in bad circumstances. Um, and another story along those lines that I really enjoyed from Ronald McDonald camp is my first year as a counselor there my co-counselor and I were unpacking our stuff and he had brought a leaf blower. And I'm thinking maybe he's some sort of like a clean nut and he's going to blow our bunk out every day or something. <laughs> like, Jim, why'd you bring the leaf blower? He said, ah, you know, I use it to wake up the kids. I said, you wake up the kids? He goes, they love it. <laughs> so there's, there's a tradition at camp where every morning you wake up your campers and you go to the pool and jump in for a polar bear swim. Oof. And the kids aren't super excited about getting woken up to go up to the pool and jump in. It's, it's kind of cold out because it's, uh, it's in the mountains, this camp. So it's cold. You're waking them up. And then it's not that fun for the counselors because we've got to drag some of these kids out of bed. <laughs> First day, Jim says, if anyone doesn't get up for polar bear swim, I'm going to leaf blow you. <laughs> Three days into camp, no one will get up. And it wasn't because they didn't want to go. Everyone wanted to be leaf blown. It was so fun to have oh. this windstorm in your bed. <laughs> and, and so, so we've got something that most people dreaded. And then it became really fun for everyone. And when I came home and told 
told uh, my family about it, Jack said, I want to get woken up with a leaf blower. So I started waking him up with a leaf blower. (laughs) Oh, I I am thinking, I have a leaf blower in my garage and a really long extension cord. This could be fun. Yes. (laughs) It it is fun. And, and you know, we need to look for opportunities to make things fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, And... So those I love those two anecdotes. If, if there's time, I could share another story. Please, I don't know if there's time or not. Please, absolutely. Okay, so I'll I'll share the one about the lesson in shoe tying. Mm-hmm. So th- there was this kid Jimmy, and Jimmy was in third grade, and he couldn't tie his shoes, and he was terribly embarrassed about this. So his mom would tie his shoes in a giant jumble of knots so that they wouldn't come untied, and he wouldn't have to ask his teacher. Mr. Clarkson to help him tie his shoes. And, you know, unfortunately, sometimes they'd come untied, but Mr. Clarkson always tied it with no, no problem, was very nice about it. And, and Jimmy was different than the other kids. He only had one hand. Uh, his other hand was a prosthetic, which is why he couldn't tie his shoes. And he was so self-conscious. I mean, there was even a, a girl in his class who burst out in tears when she first saw his hand because she thought it was so scary. Mm-hmm. One day, Jim comes to school, and Mr. Clarkson says, I figured it out. And Jim said, what'd you figure out? He said, I figured out how you could tie your shoes. He turned on a movie for the class, took Jim into the hall, and showed him how to tie his shoes with one hand. Jim said that lesson in shoe tying made him believe that he could do whatever he wanted to do as long as he put his mind to it. And he wanted to be a baseball player. He practiced like crazy. He wound up leading the U.S. Olympic team to a gold medal as their pitcher. Then he got a contract with various teams. He pitched a no-hitter, no which is a huge deal in baseball. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, as he played, more and more fans with disabilities, so parents with their kids would show up because they wanted their kids to see someone with a physical disability who was, who was out there doing things. And he started getting hundreds and hundreds of letters. And Jim said that he answered every letter and talked to every fan because he remembered what Don Clarkson had done for him. And he wanted to give back. So he also started raising money and speaking to groups of children with disabilities and nonprofits that supported them. And he's helped thousands and thousands and thousands of kids. And he's in his 50s now and says, like, this was the moment, this one lesson in shoe tying. Maybe it took Mr. Clarkson 20 minutes or maybe three hours. It doesn't matter. He saw this need and did it. And there's been this follow-up ripple effect. So I wound up talking to Nick Newell. So when Nick was six, his grandparents took him to a Yankee game so that he could meet Jim Abbott because Nick also only had one arm, one hand. And... Nick said it was inspiring. He saw this guy who was a pro athlete with one hand and Nick wound up also becoming an athlete. He's a mixed martial arts fighter. And he said people started showing up at his events, parents and parents with kids who had disabilities looking for advice, looking for a role model. And Nick said that because of what Jim did for him, he feels that he wants to keep giving back. So he talks to every person who comes to him (laughs) He speaks at these big events for kids with disabilities to inspire them. He raises money for them. And he tells me he even teaches them how to tie their shoes with one hand. Mm. 
And it's this incredible trickle down that has happened and you often don't know, right? So, so many of the stories in the book, the person, the original person who did it had no idea of the impact it had. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I talked to Don Clarkson. Don Clarkson was the third grade teacher. I talked to his wife uh, and you know she had no idea about Nick Newell and these other people who were following in Jim's footsteps because of this lesson in shoe tying. Wow. And that teacher never wore a cape. You know, who knows if he had millions of dollars that he was giving away, but he took the time to figure something out and then teach it to his student who needed to know, and he changed the world. Amazing. And it's like, and that's what, like, what I loved about this book is all these people I got to meet where I, I talked to a friend of mine. I had no idea. There was one conversation he had when he was in high school that changed his entire life and is the basis of what he does. And, and there's so many stories where the smallest things have such a big impact that it, it feels empowering that of course we can do that. You know, if we keep our eyes open every day, yes. we can do something along those lines. Yes. Friends, you are going to love this book. It's called Humankind, Changing the World One Small Act at a Time. And It's not going to lead you into that place where you're like, oh, I'm not doing anything. It's going to lead you into the place that says, you know, this world is really awesome and I get to be a part of it. And I remember the people who are amazing to me and uh, and I can't wait to go be amazing to somebody else. Brad, I think you are amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yes, this was just delightful. And uh, real quickly, I, I thought I... I saw that you, are you writing another book? I I have plans to write another book, but I haven't started writing another book yet. Okay. So it's still in the, in the mind process. Well, I can't wait. We're going to all be looking for that one as well. And um, thank you. Thank you for releasing humankind into the world. Thank you. That was a conversation with author Brad Aronson. Check out his book, Humankind, and his website at bradaronson.com. Thanks for listening to The Kindness Podcast. It's produced by WOUB Public Media and relies heavily on the kindness of engineer Adam Rich. I'm Nicole Phillips. We hope you'll subscribe to The Kindness Podcast wherever you listen and find us on social media at Kindness Podcast. If you like the show, please spread some kindness in the review section and check out my new book, The Negativity Remedy, now available in stores. 